0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: In the 1970s and early 80s, the Australian film industry was booming. Movies like Storm Boy, Picnic at Hanging Rock and My Brilliant Career were showcasing Australia to the world. The Australian films have recaptured the universal truth kind of story. And to me, the best films that I've seen are coming from Australia. In Tasmania the state government wanted a piece of the action, commissioning an ambitious film about the island's colonial past.
0: Manganini. When this film appeared, I mean, it was quite extraordinary.
2: It had such a big impact on my childhood that I just couldn't get away from the oh, you were the little girl in Manganini.
3: Proud of those people who fought and resisted.
0: This was a fully-fledged artistic and cinematic engagement with Tasmanian Aboriginal history.
1: Hello and welcome to The History Listen. I'm Kirsty Melville. And today, the story of Tasmania's first modern feature film and how a woman from the remote Northern Territory became its star.
3: It was exciting for her, you know, going on an unknown
1: adventure. Producer Jack Schmidt... Embarks on a journey from the tropical north to the highlands of Tasmania. This is Making Manganini, and a warning to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners that this story may contain voices of people who have died.
4: It's spring 1979. On the freezing edge of Lake St. Clair in Tasmania, a young woman born thousands of kilometres away in remote East Arnhem Land, starts to sing. Her name is Mawiyul Yandalawe, a teacher, mother, and the unlikely star of a movie called Manganini.
5: So we rolled, action, and off she went.
3: Mum sings the fire song, and then she cries, real tears and real emotions.
4: This story begins on Maui's country in the Northern Territory. Here's her daughter, Najesta.
3: My name's Najesta Putsana. I'm currently in Galuwinko community, and I was born in Darwin. My house is just right across the road from the airstrip nature pretty much around us, all the stringy bark trees.
4: Najesta's community of Galuwinko is on Elko Island, about 550 kilometers northeast of Darwin in the NT.
3: Galuwinko is my sister. The land is actually my sister. That's how I'm related to it. It's my connection to the Yolngu nations. It's who I am. It's where I'm from. And I will always be Yolngu. I can't change that.
4: Najesta is 44 years old now. She was just two when she joined her mum, Marwil, on this big adventure to make a feature film in Tasmania.
3: My mum... She's getting older, she has dementia, but um, because she's been talking about the movie ever since it was made, every year we watch it, we've kept her memories alive in our memories.
4: Najesta's mother, Marwiel, was born in remote East Arnhem Land in 1939, in the community of Millangimby.
3: Mainly, they were living off the land, like collecting native foods, fishing.
4: Yongwu people have occupied this part of Australia for tens of thousands of years. It wasn't until 1923 when the Methodists first established a mission in Millingimbi.
3: She first started babysitting the missionaries' children, so they spoke to her in English. She spoke to them in Yolongamatta and then they taught her how to read by their storybooks. She always had a passion for working with children, learning from them and teaching them as well. And that's how she became a preschool teacher.
4: Mawiyul took a teaching job in Gallowinku. With children of her own, a family emergency would force them to move to Darwin.
3: My sister Susan, her leg got jammed in a merry-go-round. And uh, she was flown to Darwin and she had to do a lot of reconstruction on her leg. And because my mum was a teacher here already, she transferred her job into Darwin and that's where she started working at Bagot Preschool.
4: I'm here in Baggett Aboriginal Community in Darwin's northern suburbs. In 1979, Mario was working in Baggett as a preschool teacher when a director from Tasmania rolled into
5: town. My name is John Honey. I'm a retired screen director and screenwriter.
4: John was in the top end trying to find the lead for his movie, an actor who would play the role of Manganini, a fictional Aboriginal woman living in 1830s Tasmania.
3: They were looking for dark-skinned Aboriginal people to just reenact the original people of Tasmania. Friends of my mum said, Oh, you should go and audition and give it a go. You know, the saying, gotta be in it to win it.
5: I thought, OK, we better go to Darwin and have a look at Marwil. She had a reputation as a storyteller, and that was really all we knew about her. And when we met her, she was extremely shy. And I thought, okay, I don't know how this will go, but she was lovely. But I thought, okay, the only way that we're going to really understand whether or not she will do this is if she is willing to come to Hobart and we can do a a screen test. and, And that would have been August, September, so it would have been winter.
3: It was exciting for her. you know, going on an unknown adventure.
4: It's the bitter Tasmanian winter of 1979, just a few short months before filming of Manganini is due to start. Marwil arrives at Hobart Airport, where director John Honey is waiting to pick her up.
5: So one of the first things we did, we got a 35mm camera, we got some possum skins and sort of cobbled together a potential costume. And we drove out to the foothills of Mount Dromedary, north of Hobart. And I just said, look, I just want you to go into the bush, we'll follow you, and you do whatever you feel like doing, as though you're here by yourself. And off she went. It's very difficult to describe quite how she did this, but she embraced this bush thousands of kilometres away from her own. It was almost impossible for me to believe that this woman I was seeing on the screen was the same woman that I'd met in the Baggett Preschool in Darwin.
4: In Marwiel, John had found his manganini. But now the pressure was on. The Tasmanian Film Corporation had been established just two years earlier, in September 1977 with the ambition to create a distinctly Tasmanian piece of cinema. Manganini would be the corporation's first feature, something that would, hopefully, tour international film festivals and show Tasmania off to the world.
5: It was an uncompleted manuscript for a children's novel called Manganini, written by a woman called Beth Roberts, who came from a a sort of grazier family from the central highlands of Tasmania. It takes place in 1830 with the infamous black line.
0: If that black line had happened anywhere in the world today, there's no doubt it would be referred to as a classic case of ethnic cleansing.
4: Professor Greg Lehman is an art historian and writer descended from the Trollwoy people of northeast Tasmania.
0: That involved the government allocating over half the colony's entire annual budget to arming every able-bodied man, convict, free settler, constable, soldier in the colony and stretching them out in a series of cordons across those settled districts with the aim of driving Aboriginal people down onto a narrow isthmus called Eagle Hawk Neck. The plan was to capture people and then send them off to an island where they could be removed from the colony and no longer a problem for people who were being given land grants. At that time, the colony had descended into what was commonly referred to as the Black War where Aboriginal people were attacking settlers, burning down barns and houses and and fences. This was a genocide that was happening and some of the opening scenes in Manganini are almost unique in the history of cinema in terms of depicting those events.
4: It's in this historical setting that we meet the film's main character, Manganini.
5: Manganini, a woman of status within the tribe with special relationship to the custody of fire, is separated from her tribe and her husband is killed. And she wanders in the winter, trying to reconnect with her tribe. In the process of doing that, she accidentally comes across a little girl, a little red-headed girl, and the red hair to Manganini is a symbol of fire, so she sees an affinity.
2: My name is Joanna. Joanna. I certainly remember a beautiful warmth. Manganini. A really um, respectable older mother figure, I suppose.
4: This is Anna Ralph. These days, she's a doctor at Royal Darwin Hospital.
2: We're sitting on my balcony in beautiful Larrakeia country.
4: But back in 1979... She was a seven-year-old Tasmanian schoolgirl, plucked from the classroom to make her acting debut. Anna had never met an Aboriginal person before, let alone a group of Yongu actors, all the way from the top end.
2: I grew up in Richmond in Tasmania, which is probably one of the most Anglo-Celtic places you can imagine.
5: Anna kind of stood out for one reason. She was far and away the most convincing sleeper of all of the kids that we tested.
2: I remember acting out, waking up, looking scared in a cave and having to demonstrate fear and backing away from the unknown. The child having red hair was a critical part of the film, so my (laughs) hair was (laughs) hennaed. So I spent my entire childhood with growing out red hair. (laughs) Here's
4: Mawil's daughter, Najesta.
3: So Anna and my mum... Just bonded really quickly, Anna would have been comfortable with my mum, just with that natural ability to keep children calm when they're around strangers or environments that they're unfamiliar with.
2: And in terms of kinship, she would see me as her mother and therefore her daughters who I met at that time would be considered my sisters.
4: With Marwiel and Anna cast in the film's two starring roles... It was time to make a movie. But just as things were getting underway, tragedy struck for Marwiel and her family back
5: home.
3: Yes, my brother passed away. He was very young. He was 19 at the time.
5: I got word that her son had died. I thought, oh my God. The crew were
4: preparing to record perhaps the most pivotal scene in the film. Manganini and her tribe have just been ambushed by British soldiers on horseback. Manganini conceals herself in the trees, and when the coast is clear, she emerges to find her husband, Mina Pikamina, has been shot. Alone, she builds a funeral pyre, lights it, and begins to sing.
5: We received assurance that. In spite of that, she was going to come back. And I thought, what sort of emotional state is she going to be in? So I met the plane when she arrived, and she got off the plane. And well, the first thing she did was she handed me an audio cassette, and I said, what's this? And she said, this is the song that was sung by the songman at my son's funeral. And this is the song that I will sing over the funeral pyre of my husband. Mina, Peter, mina! That scene was scheduled fairly early on. So there we were on the edge of Lake St Clair on this slatey grey day with the you know, grey sky and the, and the grey water with the funeral pyre. So we rolled action and off she went. And she just launched straight into this amazing performance of keening and sitting down and then this huge voice booming out across this quiet lake with this incredible dirge melody. And we just rolled and let it go and let it go.
3: My mum sings the fire song. And then she cries real tears and real emotions because she thinks about her son, my brother. Yes, generation to generation, that song is sung during funerals, still does to this day.
5: It's one of the most moving moments I've ever experienced in my life, and every time I talk about it, I, even now, you know, 42 years later, it still affects me that way. She delivered us the movie, really, at that point. I just felt this sense of great admiration and also, for me, a sense of great relief because I knew then we were gonna be okay.
0: And so another Tasmanian feature film receives its premiere.
3: They had the red carpet, limousines and everything. Mum pulled up, she was dressed in a nice evening gown.
4: It's the 9th of July, 1980, and the highly anticipated Manganini is making its premiere at a black tie event in Hobart.
3: And I was two at the time, and I was playing and running around. (laughs) Is Manganini up to standard of the films that have been produced by the other state film corporations?
0: Oh, yes, it is. I I saw it at the festival about two months ago and it stood up remarkably well. It looks absolutely magnificent. I believe after the Australian public and people around the world see Manganini, they will recognise the quality of the corporation, the quality of the performers and the quality of the island.
4: The film would go on to win awards in Paris and Moscow and an AFI for Tasmanian-born composer Peter Sculthorpe's original score. Marwil was nominated too for Best Actress.
5: I think it was an injustice, actually, that she didn't win.
4: Manganini wasn't a big commercial success, but it did enjoy a long run in Tasmanian cinemas. Professor Greg Lehman was a young university student when he first saw the movie.
0: If I have one really powerful memory, apart from just the spectacle of seeing Aboriginal people playing the roles of my Aboriginal ancestors, that impact was the the very human story. Up until that time, I think, tribal Tasmanian Aboriginal people, what we refer to as the old people, were quite distant characters. Almost there's a sense of kind of unknowability. And when you saw actors, Aboriginal actors, on the screen portraying these characters, it really... I guess it sounds like a cliché, but brought them back to life.
4: Here's director John Honey again.
5: When I was at school, the view of Tasmanian Aboriginal history was very sketchy, but one sure thing was that it assumed that they no longer existed and were always spoken of in the abstract. And so, you know, one of the things that I wanted to make sure was that we were presenting fully functional, fully interactive, fully human
0: human beings... Look, I was born in 1961 in Olverston, which is a coastal town in the northwest of Tasmania. Olverston was a million miles away from anywhere. It was also a time when Aboriginal history, colonial history, was just simply not spoken about. It it was like it was living almost in, in a vacuum. It certainly was a vacuum in terms of Tasmanian Aboriginal history and culture. That silence started to fill in the late 60s, the beginnings of what we might now call the modern Aboriginal rights movement. And, you know, by the early to mid 70s, there were a whole range of things happening. And most critically, there was a genealogical research being done on Tasmanian Aboriginal families, the families who had survived those early colonial impacts of the black war and the black line so you know it was a time of piecing all of those things back together
4: manganini was an implicitly political film when it came to the making of the movie john honey and his collaborators researched anthropological records tasmanian colonial diaries and illustrations and also consulted the tasmanian aboriginal center
5: You know, I was very much aware that uh, you know I was a white guy sort of intruding on a on an Aboriginal story, it an Aboriginal story that
0: um, had been written, but also by a white woman. Forty years on, having you know become a professor and and spent most of my life studying history, I can look at it critically and I can pick holes. But I'm also really struck by just how well John Honey did in his recreation. Yes, there are stories of Aboriginal people and there is depiction and representation of Aboriginal culture involved in that. But it's also very much a white story. This is a story about what Europeans did. So it's, to my mind, it makes complete sense for Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people to be working on these sort of stories together. What I'm looking forward to, through the rise of First Nations filmmakers, is a story about colonial Tasmania that's made by a Tasmanian Aboriginal director and writer to get us, I guess, to the other end of that spectrum because there's lots of different ways to tell a story. There's no one way. There's no one view of a story.
4: Back in Darwin, the film's child star, Anna Ralph, has just revisited the movie she helped make over 40 years ago.
0: So
2: I've actually just re-watched it for the first time in a very, very long time because my daughter's now the age that I was when the film was made. In fact, she spontaneously brought it up the other day. I think definitely, you know, some of the acting could have been an awful lot better (laughs) from me. (laughs) And it's a bit embarrassing to look back on.
4: Embarrassment aside, Anna now sees Manganini through a different lens.
2: It humanises what happened and how barbaric that invasion was you see, you know, an Aboriginal family with young kids essentially being destroyed. And it's critical for Australians and Tasmanians in particular to face that history, that that was the true reality. And the fact that the film does allow you some time to get to know the Aboriginal characters. My daughter, for instance, particularly picked up on the fact that there were children there in that camp.
4: On Elko Island, a few hundred kilometres from Anna's house in Darwin, Manganini is watched every year by Marwil's family and community. Here's Marwil's daughter, Majesta.
3: Yes, everybody knows about it. And the new generations that don't know my mum, there was this time when mum came into Galiwintgur and there was all little kids running around who had seen the movie on NITV. And then we said to mum, I said, mum, play the part. Where you blow the fire stick so she got a stick and mimicked it was a fire stick and then mum said korta, korta, and then blew on the stick as she did in the movie and the whole kid's face just lit up and they all said manganini but she's old now <laughs>
4: After her acting debut in Manganini, Mauiul was cast in several other productions, including the groundbreaking TV series, Women of the Sun.
3: So she was offered more roles in the 80s, and um, did that alongside her teaching career as well. In
4: 1991, Mauiul was honoured for her life's work.
1: Mauiul was awarded the Order of Australia in the Australia Day list of honours, but the ceremony had to wait. Mauiul wanted her investiture held during National Aboriginal and Islander Week and to share the event with her people of the Gallowinku community on Elko Island.
2: Yeah, I've been enjoying, you know, really enjoying myself
3: in the movie, you know, and I really like it to make the movies.
1: But Mauiul was mesmerising audiences long before her first acting role.
3: Now put your hands at your back. And now we're going to sing in the Maori language. And everybody sing. Help
4: me, all right? Say. Maori's child co-star, Tasmanian-born Anna Ralph, eventually moved to the Northern Territory herself to work as a doctor. And one day, a chance encounter at Royal Darwin Hospital would lead to a surprising reunion.
3: I was interpreting the emergency department and Anna was the doctor who I was interpreting for and a patient and I didn't recognize her because she looks different now to when she did 40 years ago in the movie. When I introduced myself I said my name's Najazda and then she asked me she said you wouldn't happen to be Moyle's daughter and I said yes I am and then she said it's me, it's Anna, Anna Ralph. And I said, who, Joanna? Because that was her name in the movie. And she laughed and said, yes, it's me, Joanna. And then, yeah, it was, I got all emotional, but because I was on the job, I had to stay professional.
2: (laughs) Didn't want to be crying in front of the patient. And I went to her house and we watched it together. And it was hilarious because she had so many different insights from me and she'd be laughing at scenes that I didn't even realise were funny. So we've caught up over the years periodically and now I get to catch up with her daughters. You know, in retrospect, I think the movie obviously had a massive impact on my life trajectory and I'm sure it had an impact on my decision to work in Aboriginal health subsequently.
3: I went to Ludmilla Primary School in Darwin and kids would bring in toys or photos or things like that for show and tell. I used to bring my mum in and say, this is my mother and she's a movie star.
4: Here's Mawiel Yandalawe, AM, the star of Manganini, with the final word.
3: And I'm very proud, not only for me, But uh, Aboriginal people all around Australia and new generation to come, you can do the same thing like I do now, today. I'll do it and you can do it the same.
1: Making Manganini was produced by Jack Schmidt with sound engineer Simon Branthwaite. Thanks to everyone who took part in today's show. I'm Kirsty Melville, and I'll catch you for another deep dive into the past next time on the History Listen. See you then. Mm-hmm.